Okay, welcome to the Welsh Cast. My name is Jamie. Ever since I did the Scott Cast, I've been receiving messages on Facebook, Twitter, and I've even been getting personal emails asking for more about Wales. And my response has always been the same. I'll do it, but not yet. Well, I think that right now is the best time to get that ball rolling. Why? Because the Germanic East and the Celtic West are about to come into direct conflict. Sure, things have never been all that friendly, but it's going to get a lot worse thanks to an old man thinking a slave boy was cute as a button. Seriously, when you get right down to it, that's basically what started this mess. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. First, let's talk about Wales and what makes it special and unique. After all, Wales has been on a very different track of development from the Anglo-Saxon communities that we've been discussing in Season 2. But unlike the Scott cast, we won't be covering the early history in heavy detail, because we've already covered quite a lot of Welsh history in the show to date. So my thought is, I can largely remind you of the story with an attention to how it was affecting the Welsh, and if you want more detail, you can double back and listen to some of those earlier shows. And that will allow us to quickly get to that fun sub-Roman period and all of those people who were really irritating Gildas. Now, Wales wasn't Wales for a very long time. In fact, the name of the country is a derivation of an Anglo-Saxon term for foreigner, which is a bit cheeky. But for the vast bulk of the human history of Wales, it probably wasn't a singular political entity. Rather, it looks like it just started out as a territory inhabited by nomadic bands and eventually became tribal territory, which it would continue to be so for a good part of our story. But for the sake of ease, I'm just going to refer to that area as Wales. I know it's not entirely correct, but it'll just make this discussion a lot easier. So with that out of the way, let's get going. To start with, the first evidence of humanity in Wales dates back about 250,000 years in the form of a hand axe found near Cardiff, and also a human tooth, which was found not too far away. And that means that all that fun prehistoric stuff we've spoken about, such as the giant deer, the abandonment of the region due to the spreading ice domes, the introduction of agriculture, the growing complexity of society and culture, all of that applies to Welsh history as well. The transitions in culture from the Paleolithic era all the way to the Iron Age. Well, the Welsh were a part of that. And you're going to find that that will be a common theme here. The tendency is to push Welsh history into something of a ghetto, as if it was a completely different experience. But for a large part of British history, Wales was just one part of a larger tapestry. I know that's a little ironic since I'm doing a show exclusively about Wales, but this story is so complex that some choices had to be made. So today we're going to try and integrate Wales back into the story that you already know and mend that gap. For example, do you remember me telling you about the Red Lady of Paviland? That was the burial that was thought to be a Romano-British woman, possibly a prostitute, and that was because of, among other things, the red-painted bones. But when we looked at them later on, we realized that one, the body was from the Paleolithic era, not the Roman period, and two, it was a dude. Well, that archaeological version of the crying game took place in Wales. Oh, and do you remember all those cool chambered tombs, stone circles, and megaliths? They were in Wales too. In fact, the most famous of stone circles is Stonehenge, and that features Welsh stone. And frankly, that alone should give you a sense of how engaged the Welsh were with the rest of the island. I mean, whenever I look at Stonehenge, I can't help but wonder if southern Wales and Silbury Hill were part of the same political structure. 
Or how about that Bronze Age economic boom? Remember that, with all those fancy hand axes? Well, Wales was involved in that too, and actually, we've already talked about it to a certain degree. For example, the Great Orm Mine? That was the massive mine that was dug out in complete darkness, probably by kids with bone and wooden tools? Well, that was in North Wales, and actually, my parents went on a date at the Great Orm when they first got together, and you wouldn't believe the self-control necessary to keep from making spelunking comments to my father when he told me that. Anyway, that Bronze Age boom wasn't just for mining, they were also using those metals to create incredibly beautiful copper and bronze objects for both personal use and trade. And you might be wondering who they were trading with. Well, they had trading partners all over the place, but the most thriving trade was probably up and down the coast, and also with Ireland. Contact across the Irish Sea was fairly common, and would continue to be so for quite some time. And of course, that contact had an impact upon culture. Just like with the rest of the British Isles, the Welsh were swept up in the spread of Celtic culture, which brought with it language, art, and social changes. The Welsh were also building those immense hill forts, such as the Denbyshire hill forts that we discussed last year. In fact, there are around 600 hill forts in Wales alone, and the variations of those hill forts show the differing societies that existed within Wales. For example, the great hill forts of the northern marches are absent in the south, which seem to have preferred more, how shall we say, dainty hill forts? The point is that there were distinct cultural and political entities that were emerging, and the tribes that Rome later tells us about, the Ordovices, Deciangli, Cornovii, Solures, and Demaete, well, they all give us a glimpse at the diverse community that existed within Wales. The point that I'm driving at here is that just because I'm not rehashing everything we've already spoken about in excruciating detail doesn't mean that Wales wasn't a part of it. They were engaged with the rest of the world, and they were part of the same trials and tribulations that were occurring in the remainder of Britain, possibly with the exception of the strange burials at Glatalon. I don't know what was going on up there with those nutty Scots. Unfortunately, however, until the Romans showed up, no one was really writing anything down about it, or at least we don't have any records of anyone writing about it. Now part of that is because writing is fairly complex technology and takes a while to develop. Anyone who's played Civilization IV can tell you that. But the other issue is religion. Towards the end of the pre-Roman era, the Welsh had converted to Druidism. And I have rather mixed feelings about the Druids. On the one hand, and maybe this is just my love of Tolkien shining through, I think that everyone looks good in white hooded robes. So I'm a big fan of the Druids for that. But on the other hand... Their prescription against writing down their histories and sacred rites really irks me since it means that we have a large blank spot in our history. If they just wrote something down, we'd know a hell of a lot more. But not to worry. The Romans arrived in the first century BCE, and they were writing down plenty. Though to be honest, the rubber really hits the road, not with Caesar's invasion, but with Claudius and Aulus Plautius in the first century CE. After all, Caesar never made it far enough to really come in contact with the tribes of Wales unless they were supporting Cassivellaunus in battle. So, let's fast forward to the Claudian invasion. As you might remember, when Aulus Plautius and his legions arrived, two brothers, Caractacus, or Caradog in Welsh tales, and Togodomnus led the primary resistance against the Roman invasion. In the struggle, the brothers lost, and their coalition of forces were defeated. 
Togodominus was killed, and Caractacus fled to Wales. Specifically, he went to the Silures, a tribe that inhabited the southwestern portion of Wales, and it appears to have been one of the more cohesive tribes in Wales at the time. From his base of power in southwest Wales, Caradog led guerrilla strikes against the occupying Romans, and that persisted for years. But it wasn't just southwest Wales that was a problem for the occupying legions. Rather, all of Wales was a wild and unpredictable area for the Romans. And at this point, I think we can start to see a shift in the story of Wales. For quite some time, it appeared to be a story of potential cohesion between England and Wales that went all the way back to Stonehenge and maybe farther. And it continued all the way to the Welsh support of Caractacus and the other tribes of England against the incursion of Rome. But now Wales was becoming a hotbed of rebellion and resistance. And it looks like some of their neighbors to the north were kindred spirits in that regard. The Brigante, under the leadership of Cartamandua and Venutius, seemed like they would have been natural allies in many regards. But the Romans were no fools, and noted that, unlike the lowlands, the uplands and the west were rugged and mountainous, and that could be used to drive wedges between the tribes of Britain. And in 48 CE, Governor Scapula did exactly that by marching to the River Dee and demanding the submission of the Deciangli, the tribe that occupied northeastern Wales. Facing the possibility of annihilation, because let's face it, Scapula was not exactly a light touch, the Deciangli surrendered, and that effectively cut the rebellious Welsh tribes off from their rough-and-tumble neighbors to the north, the Brigantes. One year later, the Romans erected a number of fortresses in the south, including one at modern-day Gloucester. Again, this isolated the Welsh from their allies. In this case, it cut the powerful Silures of the south off from their Cornish allies in the Dumnonian Peninsula. The pressure was on, and maybe it was that pressure that led Caradog to relocate to the territory of the Ordovices in northwestern Wales. And there he continued his resistance, but eventually he was defeated by Scapula, possibly at Llanymenic, and he was forced to flee. And so he fled north to his one-time allies, the Brigantes. And you know how that ended. Not well. But it wasn't the end of Welsh resistance. The following year, the Silures fought and defeated a legion. And while Romanization was in full swing in the east, the west continued to be a powder keg of rebellion and outlawed religious practices. And of course, what I mean by outlawed religious practices is Druidism. Yep. Druidism, that religion that sometimes gets on my nerves, could well have been based in Wales. At the very least, Anglesey was probably a major college of Druidism. And the Romans were even less enthusiastic about Druidism than I am. Though it wasn't because they weren't writing anything down. Rather, officially, it was because the religion gave them the heebie-jeebies, and they alleged that the Druids committed human sacrifice. But chances are, unofficially, it was because the Druids were organizing quite a bit of resistance against Roman expansion, and that ticked the emperor off. So the Romans saw the West as a rather frustrating territory, and that was probably justified. It was a bit punchy. And in 60 CE, Governor Suetonius took time off of his busy schedule oppressing the tribes of England to travel to Wales and destroy the Druidic community at Anglesey, and then cut down their groves and basically raise hell. And honestly, given how Rome tended to be with rebellious provinces, they probably would have done a great deal more to the Ordovices if it wasn't for the fact that Boudicca had stirred up a rebellion in the east and was burning everything in sight. 
So Suetonius gathered up his troops and went back east, and dealt with that rebellion. And, as you know, the rebellion did not succeed. And the Romans, in response, butchered the tribes of Norfolk, and the area was largely desolate for generations, which could well have been the fate of the Ordovices had Suetonius not been distracted. But despite the sheer brutality experienced both within Wales and without, as well as the coldly calculated attempts to isolate and crush individual Welsh communities, the Welsh were not standing down. In fact, ten years later, the Romans were still worried about a Welsh-Brigante alliance, and so Deva, which is modern-day Chester, had to be constructed. Now this fortress was intended to permanently cut the Welsh tribes off from their neighbors to the north which suggests that even the Deciangli, the northeastern Welsh tribe that submitted to Rome, couldn't be entirely trusted by the Roman government. There was nothing stable or safe about Wales, if you were Roman. And four years later, for those of you counting, that's now 31 years of consistent resistance, Emperor Vespasian decided to try and impose Roman law upon Wales. And so Vespasian, who actually served under Aulus Plautius in the Claudian invasion, dispatched Governor Frontinus to subdue the Salures and the Ordovices. And this is how bad it got. During that period, three out of the four legions of Britannia were stationed on the border of Wales. Think about what that means. Wales is not an enormous territory, and it wasn't as densely populated as some of the lands of the east. And Britannia already needed an unusually large number of legions for Rome to maintain its control. And now you had 75% of those legions that were needed just for Wales. That should let you know how staunch the resistance was. But the Romans weren't stupid, and they learned their lesson. And so building upon their successes with Deva, the legions went about constructing fortresses and pushing back the Welsh step by step. And to great expense. And eventually, in 75 CE, the Silures were defeated. But the Ordovices, who were probably less than inclined to seek a peaceful resolution after the massacre at Anglesey, persisted on, and it wouldn't be until Governor Agricola that they would be defeated. And Agricola followed up that victory in 79 CE by butchering the Ordovices before moving on to fight the tribes of Caledonia. The conquest of Wales was over. However, it had proven to be extremely costly to the highly experienced legions of Rome. The land was rugged. The staple food of the legions, which was grain, was rather scarce. And the region was so dangerous that there was a need to go through the expense and effort to create permanent encampments all throughout the territory, linked by a network of roads, generally within a day's march of each other. Constructions like this were not cheap, nor easy but they were probably necessary for the Romans. In the Welsh, they found a tenacious enemy, one that engaged in guerrilla tactics rather than the organized fights that Rome preferred, which allowed for small Welsh warbands to effectively tie up incredibly large numbers of some of the best soldiers in the world. This was so troublesome for the Romans that they flooded the region with soldiers, with some scholars estimating that as many as 70,000 Roman soldiers were active in Wales during the height of the subjugation. Wales did not give in easily. But, over time, the violent resistance ebbed, and the legions could be withdrawn. By the time of Hadrian, we see soldiers being removed from Wales for service on the Wall, for example. 
And within about 100 years, Rome felt that the Silures were sufficiently Romanized as to no longer need full-scale garrisons within their territory. Though consider that for a second. That's how dangerous the Silures were. Rome felt that it was economically valid to shell out the denarii necessary for about 100 years to maintain full-scale garrisons in southwestern Wales. They must have been terrified of the locals. But they were the same people who defeated a legion, so I suspect it took the Romans a while to forgive and forget. However, even when the Silures began to Romanize, the Ordovices in the northwest were not too excited about this new world order that was imposed upon them by the same people who massacred their priests and then came back to massacre their population. And there's evidence that even by 200 CE, there is still a great bit of unrest in that area. However, with all these legions, encampments, and fortresses came money. A lot of it. And on that scale, it was just hard to resist. And so over time, the local population did what most of the world did. It wanted some of that filthy lucre and began to Romanize. And this really kicked into high gear after Caracalla extended citizenship to all free men in 214. And as Roman culture spread, life in Wales started to take on a more urban tone. Which makes sense. Among other economic factors, you have the simple fact that populations are easier to keep an eye on if they're clustered together. And Rome took full advantage of this. Granting charters to build a civitas would prove to be quite the carrot in encouraging settling down and putting on a toga. As one tribe gained a civitas, other neighboring tribes started to want the same privileges. Roxeter was the first, but it was followed by Carawent and Camarthen. In Wales, the dogged resistance of their forefathers was being forgotten, and gradually the population was seeing itself as Roman. And some of the more wealthy members of society were even moving into villas. And of course, this shift started with the ruling classes. And there we see Romanization taking root, and the rich abandoning their Celtic traditions of art, religion, construction, and culture in favor of the Roman-approved styles. And as the ruling classes made the switch, the lower classes began to follow suit. Soon you had Latin proliferating within Wales, and even literacy, as evidenced by the graffiti that we found. The cities actually became bilingual, with the population speaking, and sometimes writing, in both Brythonic and Latin. And this is actually rather remarkable, and shows the Welsh instinct to not lose their culture, which is fairly rare because in other Romanized regions in the Western Empire, there's often an abandonment of the prior language and a near total acceptance of Latin. But not in Wales. And sometime around this point in history, the lively trade that had been occurring between Wales and Ireland since, hell, the dawn of time? Well, that started to get a little more rowdy. Remember when I mentioned that much of the issues that troubled Eastern Britannia also troubled the West? Well, in Eastern Britannia, you find the Romano-British suffering at the hands of barbarian raiders, looters, and pirates. And in Wales, they had the same problem, but instead of Germanic barbarians and Picts, they were dealing with the Irish barbarians and Picts. So, much like in the East, with the development of the Saxon shore, the defenses of Wales were reorganized and made much more effective against attacks from the sea. And this happened sometime after 300 CE. And that's a gigantic shift, isn't it? 
For a very long time, the defenses were put in place to protect good Romans from the machinations of the barbarian Welsh. But now the Welsh were the good Romans and needed protection from the barbarian Irish and Picts. A lot had changed in 250 years. But not everything. The Welsh were still rather resistant to giving up their religion, for example. Under Roman occupation, Druidism was illegal and ruthlessly sought out and crushed wherever it was found. However, the old traditions were not given up easily, and the Celtic gods and even Druidism held on in Wales into the 4th century CE. But eventually, it was displaced by the dominant religion of the empire, Christianity. Now, the early spread of Christianity through emperors like Constantine initially didn't really affect the rural Welsh all that much, as that religion was primarily a Romanized urban religion. Though it certainly would have had an effect upon the individuals living within the Civitas and other population centers. But as time marched on, it grew in popularity, and the real spread of the religion started towards the end of the 4th century, so roughly around the time of Patrick. Now, throughout much of this, Wales was involved in all the nutty aspects of Romano-British history. They were there when Albinus, governor of Britannia, tried to take the purple, as well as a cascade of other usurping attempted emperors. They were deep in the thick of it during the Barbarian Conspiracy of 367. Like other regions of Britannia, they began to heavily fortify their towns, move their granaries within the walls, and civil life started to look a lot like life under siege rather than the urban landscape that it once was. And then, as the Western Empire under Stilicho was trying to hold on by any means necessary, renewed barbarian attacks were launched once more upon Wales as Neal of Nine hostages plundered the Welsh coasts in 405. And it seems like it wasn't all plunder, but there were probably also Irish colonies that established themselves in southern Wales at around the same time. So it's pretty clear that the Irish were kicking the Romanized Welsh up one side of the coast and down the other. And as a consequence, the British turned to Rome for assistance. But Honorius didn't seem overly interested in helping out the British after all the various rebellions and usurpations that they had to deal with out of that island. And so he suggested that they look to themselves for protection. Which probably scared the bejesus out of the Brits. And if you feel sorry for the Welsh in this, you should. They were generally just along for the ride with the various political machinations of leaders that were propped up by the legions of Britannia. It wasn't like they had a vote on this stuff. But whether they liked it or not, they were a part of it. However, their story is only just beginning. And already, they've gone through a tremendous amount of change. From nomadic groups, to tribal communities, to a region at war with the might of Rome, to a region gradually accepting Rome, and eventually to Christian Roman citizens. They were first part of the province of Britannia, and then Britannia Superior, and then finally Britannia Prima. And now that Rome was gone, who were they? How did they see themselves? Were they still Romans, or were they something else? One thing we know is that they weren't calling themselves Welsh. But someone else will be doing that very soon, and we'll get to that next week. Now, before I let you go, I have a listener question here. Hello, um, I'm Robert. I'm 14, uh, from Manchester in England. Just wondering if I become a member, would I get all the previous podcasts? Well, thanks for calling in, Robert. 
And to answer your question, yes, you get all the previous podcasts. And actually, there were two that were launched last week. One on The Wanderer, which is a famous Old English poem. And in that, we have a couple fantastic readings. It's pretty great. And on the other one, we have a discussion with a paleo-osteologist on Richard III's wonky back, which was also quite a bit of fun. So members, make sure you update your feeds. And if you want to become a member, just head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and select Become a Member, and you can just follow the instructions there. Now, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just search for at britishpodcast. And, of course, you can find us on the forums. Just go to the British History Podcast, click Get Involved, and click Forums. All right. Thanks for listening.